Knowing what you believe and why you believe it lies at the very heart of Christian experience, worship, and everyday living. The Bible's not about you. You're not David. Trouble in life is not Goliath. Jesus is going to be David in the shadow. Goliath is going to be sin and death. Who's that make you? Uh, and it doesn't make you the Israelites in the corner. Like, He's going to kill all of us. That's exactly who you are. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I, with body and soul, life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. The gospel is that God the Son freely agreed to die our death for us, to suffer our deserved condemnation and doom in our place. And he didn't just agree from eternity to do it, he actually did it. It is fatal, fatal for us to think that we can ever move on from the gospel. The great problem in the evangelical church today where the scripture is concerned is not the inerrancy of the Bible. The great problem in the evangelical church today is the sufficiency of scripture. We don't think it's sufficient to do what we have to do. So we have to wake up what's happening and recognize that the problem really is our lack of theology. Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. I'm Colleen Sharp and my co-host is Angela Whitehorn. And we're really excited this week to have Rachel Miller with us again. And uh, if you've listened to the podcast any length of time, and even some that haven't, uh, probably know Rachel. She has uh, the blog Daughter of the Reformation and she has a new book coming out, and I think um, next fall, Rachel, is that when it's coming? Early September, Lord willing. Oh, well, that would, that would be great. Can you just tell people just a little bit about the, the book that will be coming out, and we'll hope to have Rachel on then also? Sure. Uh, the book, the title is uh, Beyond Authority and Submission, and the subtitle, uh, Women and Men in Marriage, Church, and Society. And the book's coming out. I think I think first week of September is what they've said. Um, and it's coming out from PNR publishing. Um, the book is about a lot of the things that, you know, we've talked about before, what we've talked about, um, what I talked about on my blog, but it's looking at the ways in which um, our, our conservative Christian society has incorporated unintentionally for the most part, um, cultural ideas that we've inherited from the Greeks and the Romans and the, through the Victorians. Um, and we, we teach them these beliefs about men and women as if they're from the Bible. And in fact, we tend to, to even view the Bible through that lens and with a real emphasis on authority and submission. And so the, the purpose of the book is to peel back those um, extra biblical and biblical layers and look at what it is that the Bible actually says about women and men and how to apply um, biblical themes like unity, interdependence and service to the relationships in marriage and church and society um, and move past, um, you know, hyper-focus on authority and submission, which are important but not the only thing we should be talking about. We've gotten a lot of people asking us to talk about this topic of feminism. And mm -hmm. I think we're just at such a interesting time, just even historically thinking about these issues. Cause like I grew up in the 1970s and 1980s and 
you know, things have changed just so much since, since then. And, and then we've seen all kinds of things like patriarchy, which sometimes can be in response to feminism. And so um, we just really want to talk about, I know you've done a lot of research for your book on this topic and just know a lot of this topic. So just for our our listeners, we're going to talk about what feminism is and is there any good that came out of it and, um, and some of the unbiblical responses and some of the other things. So I guess the first um, thing we should ask you is how did the feminist movement start? Well, when you talk about the feminist movement, at this point, we are on the third or fourth or even more uh, wave of feminism. So there's been, it, it's a very large title, or it's a, it's a title for a very large movement uh, that's had many different goals over time. But the earliest of the feminist movements, the first wave feminists started at the very tail end of the Victorian era. So you're looking at mid, well, I guess mid 1800s through about 1920 when um, the women got the right to vote in the U.S. That, that's kind of considered the, that first wave feminist movement. And it was done in reaction to a lot of uh, the excesses of the Victorian era and the way women were treated and the way women were restricted. Um, and it was also done kind of in conjunction and um, with the abolitionist movement that you know, women were, were fighting alongside men uh, to end slavery. And it's here and also in uh, the UK and other countries and women sort of started to say, you know, we've been fighting for these rights for other people, but women should have rights as well, uh, or women's rights should be recognized as well. It's kind of funny because part of what happened is during the Victorian era, um, it was believed that women were more morally pure, more religious by nature, more spiritual by nature. And the early feminists capitalized on that and said, okay, if that's true, then women should have a say in government and in legal matters. Uh, and so it was kind of a turn uh, from what was believed about women, what was said about women to, okay, so let's use that. Now I'm not saying that women are more morally superior. They're not, uh, we're not inherently religious, but because it was believed at the time, it was one, it was one of the ends that they used to, to start the, the argument for, um, for voting. Cause that really was voting is like the first thing that mm-hmm. women were, were pushing for. That is really interesting, Rachel. Um, I, I know that probably most of us think of um, women getting the vote as sort of the beginning of the feminist movement Take us back a little bit to that time period you're talking about, late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, what was life like for women during that time that would make these changes that first wave feminism was looking for? Why would those be good and necessary changes for women? One of the biggest things is that women had very few legal rights. Um, and part of that was because a woman was either represented by her or her father, if she was unmarried, or by her husband. And there's a, it was called coverture, which is like coverage, coverture. And it's the idea that when 
uh, a man and a woman married, the woman's legal personage was subsumed into her husband. So her husband represented both of them legally. So if you think about that, that means women didn't own or manage property. They um, had very few rights in front of the legal system. If their husband was abusive or um, cheated on them, uh, they could not sue for divorce. They couldn't um, initiate divorce proceedings. Um, and if they were to be were to divorce, they had no custody over their children. Uh, the children would almost always stay with the husband. So they might be able to leave, but they wouldn't be able to uh, uh, work to provide for themselves. They would be left pretty much without protection um, legally and even you know, morally. They, they didn't have any way. They were kind of out there and considered fair game for being um, mistreated. And at the same time about talking about divorce, there was a, a double standard of morality. As I said, you know, the, the Victorians thought that women were more morally superior by nature, were you know, um, pure in some ways. And men were not held to that standard. So it was, it was common for men to cheat on their wives, to have mistresses, to seek out prostitutes. And a man could do that. And, you know, his wife had no recourse. If a woman were to commit adultery, then of course she would, her husband could easily um, divorce her. He could sue the man whom she had the affair with um, for, um, for damages even. And what the early feminists saw was that women were left unprotected so that, you know, even prostitution was seen as an example of women being exploited. These women didn't have a way to earn money legitimately. And so they were driven into prostitution and, you know, even sexually transmitted diseases became an issue at the time. And the first wave feminists talked about it, that, men needed to be held to the same standard of morality as women so that women would be protected. And so the protection of women legally and through um, um, being able to, to vote, to be able to um, represent yourself, to be able to separate from an abusive, adulterous husband, right? all of these things that you, you see is it's kind of twofold. One, women have an inherent value as a person and a citizen. And the other is that women and children should be protected. And so that's, those are the things, the good goals that you see in the first wave feminists. When I was studying those points in history with my kids at different points with homeschooling, it was just so eye-opening, just even learning about um, the amount of, bu- of abuse that was going on and things like that. And women were stuck often. Yes. Those things were considered to be issues within a marriage, right? Those were not, men were rarely prosecuted for abuse, right? So, you know, that was, it was a marital dispute and it wasn't handled within the courts and with the police very often. Hmm. Uh, And so the one other thing, uh, it wasn't considered appropriate for women because of what they believed about the nature of women 
for them to to be educated beyond kind of basic education or um, or to seek employment. And so it, you, know, you have the separate spheres, you know, the sphere of the home, which is where women were supposed to be, and then the public sphere, which is where what men inhabited. And so you have these two distinct worlds and separation between the two. So what were some of the legal changes that women were hoping for at that point? And, and why would the... Why would the changes that they were hoping for be good, not just for women, but for society overall? Um, They wanted for women to have the right to vote. And it's interesting because really that's the last thing that happens. It ends the first wave feminist. But um, they wanted an end of coverture so that women would have a legal standing in the courts on their own. Uh, They wanted to be able to own and manage property. Um, They wanted to have legal rights in divorce and to have custody of their children. Um, they wanted uh, access to education and employment opportunities, which is not really a legal change, but it's, you know, it's in, although it is somewhat because women were not allowed access to certain colleges and degrees plans. Um, and the women and you know, the men who, who agreed and argued with them that women should have these rights believed that not only would it improve the lives of women, but it would improve society because um, if women were educated and had access to use their gifts, then that would be good for society and that women and men would be able to be, you know, really partners in life. Um, That, you know, instead of these separate spheres where your only time they were together is at the dinner table, right? Where you have lives that are intertwined and where you really were, um, you know, co-laboring, working together in life. And, you know, marriage would be not an economic deal where, you you know, a woman felt pressured she had to get married so that she would be protected in life, but that it would be a companionate marriage where men and women, um, it was a benefit for both, a friendship. Well, that's one thing um, that even in just talking to you, Rachel, uh, just learning how different marriage was, you know, it's what what we tend to have today. I mean, each of us with our husbands is a companionship, you know. Yes. I mean, some of this and all of us that we're talking about, a lot of this is going to be much more about what middle class, middle upper class women had access to. Um, working class women, women of color, um, it was always different what was considered appropriate, what what they considered had to do to live, right? You know, working class women always worked, right? They they always and marriage was not necessarily about um, economics. You know, there was more um, love matches, uh, companionate marriage for the lower economic classes um, because their lives were different. This was this ideal of the, you know, separate spheres and the man who goes off to work and provides and the woman who stays home. It was an ideal that they never, they never could even uh, hope to achieve. So their lives were very different. So what were, I mean, we just talked about some of the changes that they were looking for and achieved what, uh, you know, sort of legal changes, what were sort of the positive changes that came out of first wave feminism that, that happened for women? 
Well, women, of course, did get the right to vote. Uh, the coverture did end, so women did have did gain the ability to manage and maintain their own property, uh, to inherit, uh, to uh, divorce, especially in the case of uh, 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 adultery, and to be able to maintain custody of their children if they did so. Uh, women were uh, allowed access to colleges and universities and advanced education. You have the first woman uh, doctor in 1915 and the first woman uh, admitted to the bar uh, in 1918. And as far as employment, more and more women uh, began to work in a variety of fields. And this is especially, you see this right, it's on the cusp of World War I and what followed. And things, so many things changed as far as society and structure. And, you know, women were thrown into doing things because the men were at war and, you know, not so much here in the U.S., but in Europe, so many men died that there were a lot of women left on their own after World War I. And so it just, it, there were so many changes to society that at the very tail end of the first wave feminists, you see kind of a, an overall upheaval of there was no going back to the old society, the old way of doing things. Mm. And it was very different. Um, I, I just want to ask you, a couple of minutes ago, um, you talked about women getting the vote being sort of the end marker of first wave fem- feminism. I know that for me, before really reading about any of it, that was kind of my thought in my mind as the marker of the beginning of feminism. Is there something that's generally considered the marker of the beginning of first wave feminism? Um, 1848, you have the... Um, the Seneca Falls Convention. Um, that's where you have uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and um, Susan B. Anthony, and they met, and that, that's where this this first uh, they had the Declaration of Sentiments and Resolutions. It was the the goals. So all these goals that we mm-hmm. talked about, they wanted to end the separate spheres. You know, all these things were were their list of things that they wanted to have happen. And so you have about 70 years before they get the vote. And Rachel, a lot of the early feminists were Christian women, correct? Yes, um, almost all. Uh, they, they spoke about uh, their faith, and that was, it was very much a part of their lives. Um, the, you know, there was, you know, a very, very small minority of women that, uh, in the first wave feminists, that wanted changes in the church as far as like ordination, or there was even um, Stanton, Elizabeth Cady Stanton did the women's Bible, and it, there was some, but even that, it was not well received within the the feminist movement as a whole. Uh, they. It was just, it was not one of the, the goals that they had. What was the response um, from society to, to first wave feminism? Um, well, there were some that really supported uh, what the changes. If you, you know, eventually women do get the right to vote um, later here than in some other countries. But uh, there was a lot of really... Uh, 
um, hateful and mean spirited um, slogans. And, and there were, you know, there, you think about political cartoons and papers. There, there are a lot of them. You can look up suffrage and anti-suffrage uh, cartoons and just see the depictions of women. And usually, uh, almost universally, they're uh, drawn as ugly, as um, mean-spirited. You see a lot of imagery and uh, stuff about they've abandoned their families and their children. They're emasculating their husbands for those who could even get husbands because, you know, the question who would want to marry such uh, unfeminine, horrible women, right? So it, that was, there's a strong theme for that. Um, and in addition, they argued that women didn't need to vote. Uh, if women voted, it was going to destroy society because it would, you know, politics was a dirty thing and, you know, women were supposed to be pure and, and, and you know, moral. And so it would make women calloused and they would get, um, you know, dirtied by politics. And it, there was concern that allowing women the right to vote would endanger men as the head of the household because instead of men representing their household by voting, women would also be voting. And so the argument went, and we hear this argument today in some circles, you know, what's the point in women voting? Because either they're going to vote against their husband, in which case, um, you know, they cancel each other's votes out, or they're voting just like their husbands and seeing what's the point, you know, why do women need to vote? Why is it then important for us to distinguish between first wave feminism, second and third wave feminism? Um, what's important is because just like, you know, for those of us who are Presbyterians, for example, when you say I'm a Presbyterian and immediately, especially when Presbyterian has been in the news, people think about uh, the PCUSA and all sorts of things that happen in the PCUSA. And you go, no, 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 wait, I'm not that kind of Presbyterian. And you have to start explaining <laughs> the difference, right? Like, no, no, that's not us. We're this little group over here. And this is what we believe. The same thing is true when you talk about the waves of feminism, that when you say feminism and feminist, and people say, oh, abortion. Well, the first wave feminists were absolutely and completely anti-abortion. They considered it immoral. They considered it murder. They wrote out, wrote about against it. They spoke out about it. It was universally a bad thing and an, an abuse of women. So it's important to distinguish between that first wave and what they wanted with the later waves and things that have come with it because you know, the goals are different, the reasoning is different, the purpose is different, the foundational beliefs about men and women are different. You know, things really changed, um, especially in the 1960s. What are some clear differences between the early feminists and the feminists today that we think of? Abortion really is like the, the big one. Um, Starting in the second wave feminists, which begins post-World War II, 1950s, 1960s, uh, the feminist movement really split. And they split over uh, the sexual revolution and abortion. So they have one group that continues to uh, 
look at legal rights and uh, discrimination in employment and education and work for improvements. And then you have this, this other group that begins to be completely tied up it, with the abortion rights movement and with the sexual revolution. And you know, a good example uh, comes with the, the, the two groups and their view over prostitution. As you, if you remember, uh, you're old enough to remember the 1980s, and yeah, I am too. Um, a lot of discussion about uh, like pornography and prostitution. And, you know, there's one group that were more traditional feminists, mm. like the first wave feminists that said that's exploitation. Um, women shouldn't be driven into prostitution. We shouldn't abuse women by, um, by distributing pornography, right? That that's an abuse. And then the other, more driven by the uh, sexual revolution, said, well, you know, it's just expression. You know, women should be free to express themselves in any way. And if that includes prostitution or sexual workers or, you know, that's fine. And so you, you see those that split. Um, and so you kind of have like the conservative feminists and the um, liberal feminists at that point. Uh, and so they, they still were working together on some, some goals and you have like um, improvement in legal rights and, and employment, but the divide over abortion and the sexual revolution really um, drives a wedge between what the early feminists were wanting to do and what modern feminists has, has become. Mm. Well, so you're talking about the sexual revolution and, you know, we want to ask you what is driving modern feminism? Is that it? That's a lot of it, honestly. Um, you have, there's a, a book, one that I would, would recommend on the sexual revolution and how it hijacked the feminist movement. And it's called Subverted. And the author's name is Susan Ellen Browder. Um, and she was in, through the 60s and 70s, she wrote for Cosmopolitan. And she talks about all that happened and the kind of behind the scenes stuff that was going mm. on. And uh, she's, she came to faith, she became Catholic, um, 80s, 90s, I guess. And she, so she talks about what she did kind of as a, you know, almost confessional, right? She's, she's sorry for her part in it, but she wants to talk about it. Um, and so it's, it's a, it was very eye-opening uh, looking at um, what was going on kind of behind the scenes. You know, for me, you know, I, I was born in 76, you know, so my mother and my um the women of her generation you know what they faced in the workplace was something that is so different from what what we have that it's it's important even within second wave feminism you know to kind of distinguish between that you know the drive for the protection of women and the end of discrimination and the um you know, what is it? Uh, women need men like fishing bicycle, you know, that, that approach to um, men and the women being free to do whatever they wanted to do. You know, it's, it's a very different feel for what you had in the first wave feminists. Think about first wave feminists wanted men to be held to the same um, standard of morality that women were not that women would be, be allowed to be as immoral as men. Right. It, so mm. by the second wave, you have this flip, right? So that women are, are supposed to be quote unquote freed now. 
to um, to live however they want to, just like men do, apparently, or men are allowed to do. But the, the equal rights issues from the the second wave feminists, I mean, it was a big deal. I mean, when you go to a to um, an interview for a job, the things that they're the two questions that you're likely to be asked as a woman in the 70s. One is how fast can you type? because your jobs are most likely going to be secretarial, no matter what your education or background is. And the other is, uh, when was your last period? Because they want to know if you're pregnant, because pregnant women wouldn't be hired because they would leave. And there was a lot of discrimination. If you found out that you found out that you were pregnant, you could lose your job. And, you know, you, this idea that, you know, a woman who is working is just working to, you know, kind of supplement her husband's salary. So, Assuming you're so say you're a woman in the 70s, you're working in this job, you've been in it for many years, you're you've been training other people, and then this man who's you trained who's been there a few years less than you is promoted above you, and you ask about it. You say, Well, what happened? And they say, Well, you know, he has a family to support. And you're like, mm-hmm. Well, so do I. <laughs> you know, so that those ideas, those things that today, you know, you can't imagine the uh, human resources nightmare. If you even began to ask some of these questions or um, treat women in this way, it was common. Right? Women didn't have credit cards in their own names. That name they couldn't go get out, take out loans uh, very easily. With so, if you wanted to start a business, you know, as a woman, you were really kind of stuck. And so, you have, you know, these these legitimately good goals that women had, uh, and then you have, of course, the um, sexual evolution, you have abortion rights, you have the the feminist spirituality stuff that began to kind of seep in, like the um, uh, Gaia, Mother Earth, um, you know, God is she, you know, all those those kinds of things that kind of seep into the feminist movement at this point. You know, it's so, so interesting thinking about my my own grandparents who were very conservative Christians, the fact that um, they were both born in 1920, that my grandmother, my grandmother was from a family of nine and six of those were girls. And my great grandfather, very godly man, very conservative Christian, um, insisted all of his daughters go to college. And that was a, that was in the late um, 1930s. And some of them went to college before that. And my grandmother almost always worked. Yes. So, you know, when Christians talk about feminism, and I think sometimes it depends on who's talking about it, but uh, what do you think that they're referring to specifically? And one of the things I wanted to say is I, I have found that there's some that seem to throw all of it just into one basket. So first wave, second yes. wave, third wave, it's just all one thing and it's all bad. But what do you think Christians how do you think they're thinking about it and defining it when they're talking about it? Um, well, certainly among conservative Christians, you hear when, when they talk about feminist movement or feminism, they're thinking about the, you know, the, the women marching in pink hats, um, wanting uh, abortion on demand or the transgender debate or, um, you know, the sexual revolution. That, that really is those, those are the things that come to mind. And I mean, a lot of times it's used and, you know, I've said this other places, but it's used as a a way to shut 
um, discussion down. It's used as a way to label someone that you disagree with. Well, you're just a feminist, right? And so, you know, feminist has actual meaning. It doesn't just mean, you know, you're a woman and I disagree with you, right? There's, there's real meaning there. And a lot of those lines really get blurred. You know, I, we've all been in conversations and discussions at different times where that has happened, where, you know, if you're disagreeing with someone, it must obviously be because you've been influenced by feminism. And, you know, a lot of times when I hear people in these discussions talking about, um, well, Christians talking about their ideals for what women should be and what, um, the life of women should be like, it's really sort of a 1950s, leave it to beaver um, ideal. And I'm wondering if you have any ideas about where this came from. Um, Do you see this developing um, alongside the feminist movement? Uh, Part of what happened, lots of movements tend to be reactionary. There tends to be a lot of like, you know, pendulum swing, you kind of back and forth. So if you say you start the feminine, the uh, Victorian era, and the ideas about men and women and the separate spheres and kind of swings the other way with uh, the first wave feminist movement. And, and rightly so, things need to change. Um, after the two world wars, and especially after World War II, the pendulum swung back the other way. And where women had been told that their patriotic duty during the war was to go to work and to fill the jobs that the men had left empty and to help out and to do, you know, Rosie the Riveter, all these things, um, the men were home. So now their patriotic duty was to quit and to go home to make room for the men to have jobs. And so women left their jobs. Women, uh, they quit going to college. Uh, If you look at the the number of women enrolled in college in the 1920s and 1930s, it it is decently high and the numbers post-1950, it's not until, I want to say the 60s, 70s, until the numbers of women in college are similar to the numbers uh, pre-World War II. So there's there's this this real dip. Um, in fact, I can't find the, I can't remember where I read it, but it was something about how they had to start teaching home economics in high school because so many women were getting married straight out of high school and not going on to college at all post-World War II that they felt like they needed to teach them how to be homemakers and how to uh, manage a household by the time they were 18. And women had lots of babies. There was, of course, the baby boom, right? You know, the the whole boomer generation born post-World War II. But there was a desire to go back to a time that was before the wars, before when when things were peaceful, when things were prosperous. And, you know, it was really a, a return. Pendulum swung all the way back to like the Victorian times of the separate spheres. So a woman stayed home, the man went to work, women took care of the babies, and their worlds were, were, were split again. And the thing is, women were not happy or not just not happy women were distressed you see this is the rise of of women um being told by their doctors that they needed to take you know valium or uppers other uppers or downers or all these medications to 
regulate themselves because they were, you know, stressed out over being wives and mothers. Hmm. And, um, you know, because one of the charges you hear a lot now is that, well, see, women were perfectly happy with their lives until the feminists came along and told them that they weren't happy. And then women decided they weren't happy. But that's, it's really not the way things went. If you look at it, women were writing and talking about dissatisfaction with the way the world worked around them and the way what was, what was expected of them well before the feminists, even the second wave feminist movement got going. And one of the things I would recommend for someone who's interested in understanding this, in my, my backgrounds in history and reading um, firsthand accounts uh, really helps. And, you know, even if you don't agree with everybody, at least you can see what they said themselves. Um, and there's a book called The Essential Feminist Reader, where a woman has compiled starting from the late um, Middle Ages up through about 2000, lots of primary sources. And so you can just go and read excerpts from different things and, and see what women were saying about themselves and about what they think, what they um, wanted out of life. And it's it's very... Um, um, informative. You know, I'm just noticing as you're talking, Rachel, I noticed it a few minutes ago as well. There's been a few points here where you've um, talked about what women were told by society or even in a really organized fashion. It almost makes me wonder, like, um, you know, you were um, first talking about um, that women were told by society that, you know, you're the more moral ones. And then, you know, the first wave started and the response is a lot of very nasty, um, you know, you're talking about the cartoons and, it, you know, what popped into my mind there is propaganda is that it's um, yeah. intentionally telling the story a certain way. And then I heard it again a little bit with, you know, society telling women now in the war, your job is this is your patriotic duty, go to work. And I'm just kind of hearing that theme over and over of, of, a strong current to, um, I don't know if it's societal or um, even more organized than that, just to tell women this is what your job is and your function is and what your duty is. And I didn't hear in any of those that it's from the scripture. It's very cultural. Um, it, and it goes back, I mean, it does go back to the Victorian times. It goes back older to the Greeks and Romans, but there's, there's a, um, beliefs about, you know, the nature of men and women and beliefs about um, our appropriate spheres in life and the things that we're suited to and what we're not. And you're right now, it is not particularly biblical. Uh, of course, by the Victorian era, you, there were attempts by Christians to you know, kind of baptize these ideas into Christianity and say, well, you know, it's to be, you know, it's, it's according to God's design and creation that men and women are blah, blah, blah. And so they were, they added some things to make it sound good, but no, it's, it is very cultural and not, and not biblical. As you said, a lot of times throughout history, we see some of these movements are reactionary, but I, and I think that that's happened in the church. And for those of us that are a little older and some of our listeners are younger, I mean, we've really watched, you know, from the night I was born in the early 1970s and We've really seen even just um, the expectations that some have for how Christian women should look 
But what do you think are some of the reactions from the church to feminism that are not biblical? I mean, it's really a lot like what Angela was saying, that some of these things are just, they're not grounded in scripture, they're cultural. Starting in the 19, early 1980s, particularly, uh, conservative Christians started to uh, respond to the, the second wave feminism, and in particular, uh, abortion and uh, sexual revolution, and also changes that mainline churches were making um, with ordaining women in the church. And so you have this these concerns about the changes. And some of it was valid valid concerns, right? Abortion's bad. Right? Sexual revolution is destructive. Um, and, you know, we all agree that ordination is for um, qualified men that God calls and equips, right? So, you know, they had reasonable concerns about what was going on. But instead of going back to scripture, they responded by going back culturally to these older Victorian ideas, these, these separate spheres, to these beliefs about the nature of men and women um, as, you know, like really polar opposites, right? You know, so men are leaders, women are submissive, men are uh, strong, women are soft, right? So you have these, um, this uh, dualism between what it means to be masculine, what it means to be feminine, and very little overlap. Um, and in a lot of ways, you know, beyond, you know, kind of that moderate movement, there was, you know, further movement. You have um, very patriarchal, you know, it's harking to the good old days when women knew their place. And, um, but along this time, you get the beginning of, um, you know, feminism is rebellion, right? Feminism is the root of all decay in society. Um, and, you know, one guy was quote, let's see, that feminism makes men uh, effeminate, right? This idea. And the quote is that it turns women into men who, who happen to be biologically capable of having children, right? So, but it so undermines who we are essentially as men and women. Um, and it'll, in so many ways, the response mirrors that early societal response in the uh, in 1900s to the first wave feminists, to the suffragettes. Uh, it, it's a very ugly caricature. So even, you know, putting aside the valid concerns, right, to, it, the way um, feminism is lumped together, so it's all this one term, and it's all wicked and ugly and evil and destructive, is it is a, a reactionary response instead of um, a, a well-reasoned, well, let's go back to the Bible and let's be faithful to the scripture and see what we should be doing. With the current... Uh, climate, you have a, a, a very strong reactionary movement going on, uh, with the red pill movement, the manosphere, right, this very um, virulent, ugly strand. And it, I wish I could say that it was, you know, all 
um, secular, but there is a strong movement even within uh, uh, those uh, consider themselves Christian, that there is this movement of men using these terms and thinking this way, this way about women. And um, it's, uh, it's sad. It really is. Mm, yes. I have uh, personally read some of those um some of the things written by um, some of that crowd, and it is very, very discouraging. Mm-hmm. Um, well, with feminism and patriarchy both having influenced Christians, then where are we left? What do we do? I mean, this is especially happening in a time where we're accused of feminism by the patriarchy crowd and patriarchy by the feminism crowd. So now what? <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, I find it amusing you know, when, when I'm called a feminist that – if you ask someone who actually does identify with the modern feminist movement, if you, if you told them what I believe and you said, you know, so am I a feminist? They would laugh because I'm, I'm not right. They're, what I believe about, you know, men and women and about uh, marriage and about you know, headship and marriage and, and about the church and our nation, it, it really sets, sets us apart. We really are not part of the modern feminist movement. And even in the more recent, um, like the women's March, uh, pro-life women, even because there are pro-life feminists, there always have been, um, were excluded. They were not invited. They were, they were not just not highlighted. They were told that they were not welcome at the march. And so, you know, because we're not feminists and because patriarchy is not the right answer, the only thing we're left with is what we should have done in the first place. And that's to go back to scriptures and look at what it teaches and not reactionary, not longing for, you know, this good old days that may or may not ever have existed, not throwing off order, not embracing unbiblical views on marriage or sexuality or gender or in the church. And in particular, not looking at each other, men and women as being diametrically opposed to each other we should be working together side by side as uh, co-laborers. That's what we were made for. And we should not be pitting each other, pitting ourselves against each other in antagonistic ways. And it will take a lot of work to undo all these layers that we have added. Um, You know, we love lists. We like, we like our hedges. You know, we want to be careful and protected but what scripture teaches is so much better than our lists and our hedges, but also a lot more difficult because we have to actually work through it and look at how it applies. And there is not a one size fits all uh, answer for a lot of our questions. So you're saying that we cannot reduce biblical womanhood and biblical manhood to listicles? Precisely. (laughs) Exactly. Um, you know, the scripture has a greater diversity and expression of men and women than uh, our modern society would be very comfortable with. You think about um, greeting each other with a holy kiss, um, Jesus weeping, right? The um, men embracing uh, women, like the Proverbs 31 woman who is um, out considering a field and buying it. And she didn't ask her husband, right? So you, know, so you have these 
these men and women that don't fit our uh, procrustean bed, if you will, definitions that we call what doesn't fit our stretches to fit this mold. Um, and yeah, listicles just not good for us. You know, I, I've been really thinking about just some of the changes uh, since I was young. Now, now there's a lot of people, even reformed people, that what biblical womanhood looks like is a wife that stays home with her kids, um, probably homeschools them. Uh, these things like, you know, we should we should be at home with our lipstick looking good and um, mm-hmm. vacuuming at yeah. our pearls. Yes. Oh, yes. I, you got, I don't know if you guys will remember this, but when I was growing up, there was even sort of a low, maybe this was just the part of the country I lived in, but uh, kind of a low-key movement that like real Christian women make their own bread, guys. You oh, know, yeah. You, you need I'm to be nourishing your family with that. I mean, make your own grain, grind it, bake your own bread. This is what re- women who love Jesus do. So um, it's funny. Again, I'm thinking, that had to be marketing. So much of this is just <laughs> clever marketing. So, um, and obviously we're not going to be able to, this might have to just do a whole podcast on this sometime, but <laughs> what what are the biblical principles about womanhood that that we affirm, that we know are biblical? So separating some of these cultural expectations that have uh, come to be, that we see even being demanded. I, I mean, I've, I've been judged for different things. Funny thing is all three of us are stay at home moms, <laughs> you know, <laughs> in a practical level, we all, we all have husbands that, that uh, are leaders in our homes and, you know, and we're in conservative denominations. Yes. Yes. In conservative. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So what, but what are just some of those biblical principles from scripture about who we are as women? Um, I think the one that's important to start out with is that we, as women, are made in the image of God. Uh, We have inherent worth, um, just as men do, made in the image of God. Um, With our brothers, uh, we are um, equal in Christ, before Christ. We all have the spirit indwelling in us. Um, Christ is our model for behavior, um, what we want to be shaped into both for men and for women. Um, he's not just the, the model for, you know, perfect masculinity. He is the perfect human, right. For both of us, uh, to, uh, to emulate. And, um, you know, contrary to our society and our culture, we believe that, uh, women, only women can be wives and mothers, right. It's biologically that's true. But on the other hand, you know, motherhood is a great blessing, but it is not our ultimate calling. Um, As women, our calling is the same as men, which is to glorify God in all that we do. And that is our ultimate calling for uh, for men. It's the ultimate calling for women. Uh, We may do that through uh, as mothers. We may do that as wives. We may also do it through the work or the um, you know, volunteer or paid, whatever, using the gifts that God's given us. Uh, women are more alike men than anything else. Like we, you know, we are more alike than different. And as such, um, we need to remember that we are united 
in our creation and our calling to serve the Lord and in our uh, united in Christ as Christians, as believers in the church. Uh, we are interdependent. We need each other. Um, of course, there would not be children without us working together. But beyond that, um, God has gifted all of us in ways to serve um, the body. Um, and it's, I think it's important that we remember that we were made to serve. Um, we, we were made to serve God and we were made to serve each other. And um, submission, while it is very important, is something that we do as women in particular relationships, but it is not a defining characteristic of who we are because we are women. And I think that if we can appreciate the difference in that, we will go a long way in improving uh, um, the relationship between men and women and improving our, our marriages and our churches and our uh, societies at a whole. I'm wondering, Rachel, when you just said that, you know, submission, um, though it's something that we do as a part of particular relationships, it's not a part of, you know, who we are mm -hmm. as women. You're talking about it's not ontology. It's not right. that it's not our nature. women, yeah, women are not inherently submitters in all ways, all times, all relationships. Correct. Um, yeah, I would say if we're going to argue it that way. I just wanted to clarify that for oh, absolutely. some of our listeners. Submission Submission is a human characteristic. We submit because we're human, right? We are, there is God and we are not, you know, we are the created. And because we are created, um, you know, all creation submits to God, all Christians submit to Christ. Um, uh, in our churches, uh, we submit to men and women, we submit to the leadership of our churches and our governments. We submit to our, our uh, political le government leaders, um, if we work, we have a certain amount of submission to our bosses. You know, we, there's so many layers of submission and authority in our lives that, um, you know, it, it, it's just, um, un, it's not practical to say that submission is feminine mm. that way. You know, the soldiers are not feminine because they submit to their generals. You know what I mean? Like there's, there's just right. no way. So that there's not, you're saying that then submission is not inherently a feminine quality. Correct. That's what I'm saying. Well, Rachel, I have like so many more questions that have yeah. come to my head because there's this topic. Um, we have another hour? <laughs> yeah. So we're definitely going to have you back on when your book comes out. But I, I just think there's so many misunderstandings and unbiblical principles that even people in our circles are holding to these days that I think this is so, so important, this topic right here. Um, I've run into a guy who told me on Facebook that that I have to submit to him because I'm a woman, he's a man, and um, he, he disagreed with me on something, and I guess I was just supposed to agree. I, and I said, well, my husband said, no, I don't have to. No. <laughs> So I'll submit to my husband. <laughs> but, well, thank you so much, Rachel, for joining us. We're going to put in our episode notes the couple of books that you mentioned. Okay. And if there's any other um, books on this subject that you think would be helpful, we can link those also. 
And just thanks for spending all this time with us. For those who haven't heard our other episodes with Rachel, they really do go along with what we're talking about here. Uh, we did one on eternal subordination and and then two on patriarchy. So I will link those also because all of this is part of the same discussion, I think. Mm-hmm. Yes, it really is. So, well, we'll see y'all next week.